passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Last couple weeks, uh, last several weeks, we've been working our way through the book of First Peter, and we're continuing our way through First Peter this morning. And the passage that we're going through, I hope, is going to be an encouragement, but also a challenge for each and every one of us. You see, I want to start this morning with a couple questions that probably, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, we've all asked, or someone has asked us these questions. And that question uh, primarily is, how do I grow in my faith? What is it that I have to do to make myself and my relationship with God closer to him? How do I get out of the spiritual rut that I find myself in? Or put another way, how do I overcome the sins that I keep struggling with? Even more, how do I do all of this when I'm suffering? When I'm in the hard times of my life and I can barely put my shoes on, let alone try to grow in my faith? I think that this morning's text answers those questions. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be only looking at two verses, uh, verse 11 and verse 12. And what we're going to see is that Peter addresses these two questions for us by giving us two ways for us to deal with growth in holiness and growth in our faith. Now, these truths that we're going to talk about are probably pretty familiar to you. Uh, If you're looking for some sort of magic formula on how to grow in your faith, you're not going to find it here. These are things that we know and have probably heard before if we are in the church. But that being said, they are extremely effective for our growth as Christians as we grow in holiness and grow in our faith. What Peter tells us here helps us. To grow closer to God. See, our culture is sympathetic to this call to change, to this call to grow in holiness. Now, our culture wouldn't call it holiness per se, but they would say that we want to become better people. Everyone pretty much wants to become a better person. Now, what it means to be better, that word better is defined differently by each person on the face of the planet, but everyone knows that we can be better than what we are right now. So everyone seeks out ways to make themselves better. There are countless books on the subject of change. You see books talking about organizational change and how we can change an organization. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have books on personal change. How do I make changes in my own life? And there are books written uh, throughout the spectrum on both edges. One of these helpful books is called The Happiness Hypothesis. It's by a professor from the University of Virginia. And in this book, he tells us that we really have two parts of who we are as, as people. We have a rational side, and we have an emotional side. And he compares this emotional side to an elephant. And he compares the rational side to the rider who rides that elephant. And he says the problem with us when we fail in our uh, attempts at change is the reason is we're just talking to the writer. And the writer can only exert so much pressure and willpower to get that elephant to go and to go to the, way, the place that he wants it to. So we find ourselves only talking with one side of who we are, both rational and emotional. And because of that, we find ourselves falling short. I think... Now, there are some things about that that I don't agree with uh, from a faith perspective, but I think as a whole, it's pretty helpful for us. If you've ever struggled with sin in your life, 
and you know that you should be doing things differently, but you just can't overcome it. Could be that you are talking primarily with the writer and not with the emotional side. There's a disconnect between our thinking and what we do as people. Peter addresses this disconnect for us. Peter tells us that there is this disconnect between what we know we should be doing and what we actually do in our lives. And he gives us concrete ways that we can change who we are. What are these two keys? These two keys are really simple for us, and we're going to be referencing these uh, throughout our time this morning. It's two things. First, we're going to put death to death and bring life to life. Put death to death and bring life to life. That's key to how we grow in our faith and how we grow in holiness as Christians. Now, you may be wondering, well, Jordan, you've mentioned both growing in faith and growing in holiness, so which one is it? I think Peter would answer yes. It's both. As we grow in our faith, we also grow in holiness, and as we grow in holiness, we also grow in our faith. They're interconnected, and we have to recognize that you can't have one without the other. We cannot separate the two. Put death to death and bring life to life. And we'll get into what that means in a little bit. But as, as we've been going through First Peter, we've really seen in the first chapter and a half of this book that Peter really tells us three things. First thing Peter tells us is who God is. He tells us that we worship a very big God, a God who is worthy of praise and a God who is in charge even in the midst of the times where it doesn't seem like he is in charge. He tells us who we are. Tells us our identity as Christians because of what God has done for us, how we now look in God's eyes, and we are God's children. And then the third thing he tells us is what we do now. He says, in light of what God has done for you and who God is, in light of who you are, these are the things that you should do from this point. And he tells us that we are called as Christians to live lives of holiness. That's really the 5,000 foot overview of the first chapter and a half of first Peter. Who God is, who we are, and what we do because of that. This morning in first Peter chapter uh, 2 verses 11 and 12, we see the beginning of a new section in this book. If you look at the first chapter and a half, kind of like an introduction, we're now getting into uh, the concrete examples that Peter uses and concrete issues that he addresses. And it's going to be last for several chapters as we're working our way through this. He's saying, this is your call to be holy and how you do that in specific examples, specific issues and situations in your life. This is how you make changes This is how you grow in faith and grow in holiness in the midst of a hostile world and a hostile environment. I mentioned that we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to open to that. We're going to just read uh, verse 11 here at the start. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the passage is actually printed in your sermon notes. It's also going to be printed on the screen behind me. Uh, So I invite you to follow along as I read aloud uh, just 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. The first thing that Peter tells us in this verse as Christians is we are called to put death to death. Put death to death. 
I've said that multiple times. What exactly does that mean? Well, it means that we have to remove the things in our lives that are causing us harm. Whether we recognize it or not, every single one of us does things in our lives that actually hurt us, that aren't good for us. And so Peter is telling us that we have to put these things to death, that we have to abstain from the passions of the flesh in order to have a relationship with God. If, for example, let's say you are drinking some water that you find out has been contaminated by some sort of deadly toxin that once it reaches a certain concentration in your bloodstream will cause you to go into a cardiac arrest, what would you do? You would stop drinking that water because you know that it is killing you. In the same way, Peter tells us to stop going after the passions of the flesh because they are killing you. But Peter doesn't tell us to just stop it. He doesn't just say it like an unhelpful therapist who just wags their finger at you as us and says, stop this right now. Peter gives us the reason, the motivation for why we are called to put these things to death. See, every single one of us has motivation for why we want to change. Whenever someone wants to change, they have a reason why they want to change. A lot of times, those reasons are uh, pretty selfish and and wrong. For example, one might be success. We want to change so that way more people notice us, that we can have a better job, more leadership and power over other people. Uh, We want the promotion. Another reason that isn't probably the best is guilt. We see something that we aren't doing, uh, and uh, we feel bad about that, and so we change our lives because of that. And there are other reasons why we change. There are other motivations for that, and not all of them are necessarily bad. People who make uh, changes in their diet and their exercise because a doctor tells them to, to live a healthier life, that's a good reason to change. Someone who sees a need in their life or someone's life around them and commits to making a change after that, that's a good reason for change. But what we see is that those aren't the ultimate reasons. If we don't have the ultimate reason for change, especially when it comes to this uh, growth and holiness and growth in our faith, what we're going to find is that we're going to be exerting a lot of willpower in order to make these things happen. You see, every single one of us has willpower. It's an exhaustible resource, though. Some people have a lot. Some people have a little But there comes a point where it will run out. You wonder why you have tried to make changes in your life before and you have soon found yourself back where you started. Well, it's probably because you ran out of willpower along the way. If you find yourself in a rut spiritually right now, one of the reasons could be, I'm not saying that this is the reason, but one of the reasons could be is that you are working on your relationship with God out of your own strength and power, and you've just run out of gas. Because you've run out of gas, you need time to rest and recuperate before you build up enough willpower to work on that relationship with him again. And Peter recognizes this. And Peter tells us that we have to have the right motivation for growing in faith and in holiness. And he tells us right here what this ultimate reason is. Tells us that it's who we are as Christians. Who we are as Christians. This is what he means when he calls us sojourners and exiles here. See, when Peter tells us that we are sojourners and exiles, he's looking at who we are as Christians. He's referring back to our identity, what God has done in our lives, what God has now made us as his adopted children. And we have to put these things to death because of who we are. When he calls us a sojourner, he's referring to the fact that we don't live in our homeland. 
or just passing through the land that we find ourselves in, like a refugee who doesn't live in the place that they belong to. When he calls us an exile, he's saying the same thing, that we don't live where we belong. What Peter is doing is he's saying that we don't belong here. This place is not our home. The kingdom of God is. He's using the same language that is used in the Old Testament to refer to Israel when they are found in Egypt. They don't belong in Egypt. They long for their homeland. In the same way, Christians do not belong here. We long for our homeland, the kingdom of God. Peter just points out that we're just passing through. It's a part of who we are. A couple of years ago, I, uh, I had the chance to go to a worship service in Chicago that was a completely Latino worship service. And uh, you want to talk about not fitting in? Well, that was a good example of me not fitting in. I knew I was surrounded by my Christian brothers and sisters, but the entire service was in Spanish, and I know enough Spanish to be dangerous uh, when I am in foreign countries. I didn't fit in because I didn't feel the language. Now, not fitting in isn't always necessarily a bad thing, but I think that that's what Peter is telling us right here. We don't speak the language of the people who are around us. We don't do the things of the people who are around us because this earth is not our home. Christians are just passing through as we look towards the place where God has for us. So Peter asks us, why would you do something that doesn't make sense with who you are? Why would you gratify these passions of the flesh if that's not a part of who you are, if that's not a part of your identity? And when we realize that this source of motivation about who we are in Christ, when we realize that that is the reason for our change, it leads to change. But of course, it doesn't always lead to change, now does it? There are a lot of times where we can recognize that, you know, I know what I should be doing, but let's be honest, I, I, I don't want to do those things. I know that not eating some of my wife's cookies is probably a good decision for me, but it doesn't stop me from eating them anyway. There's this disconnect between what I think and what I know to be true and what I actually do in my life. And so sometimes... Recognizing our identity as Christians isn't enough. And that's why Peter tells us what will happen to us if we don't put these things to death. Notice what he says. He says that these passions of the flesh war against our soul. If we don't put these passions to death, they will kill us. Passions of the flesh will kill us if we don't kill them first. It's almost as if we're extending an olive branch of peace to them, saying that we want to live peacefully with these passions, with this sin, at the same time as having our relationship with God over here. And we extend the the branch of peace to them, and it looks like they're going to accept it, and yet they stab us in the back. 
Passions of the flesh have no desire to live at peace with us. They have a desire to war against our souls. History is filled with example after example after example of betrayals. We have a Brutus who betrayed his uh, adopted father and good friend Caesar. You have Benedict Arnold who betrayed the entire U.S. military in the Revolutionary War. And then you have people like Aldrich Ames in the 1980s who sold secrets from the CIA to the, to the USSR, leading to the direct death of 10 uh, operatives. It's exactly like what the passions of the flesh will do to us. Why do we put them to death? Because if we don't kill them, they're going to kill us first. I love the way one pastor puts it. He says, sin is a suicidal action of the heart against itself. Sin is the suicidal action of the heart against itself. When we don't put these things to death, they will put us to death instead. See, whenever you indulge your sinful passions, you're committing suicide against your soul. And that's what it means to put death to death. Our first point this morning, to put death to death. Put these things that cause death to death before they put you to death. Put death to death. They aren't just harmless. They're a form of death. And so Peter urges us and he commands us to put them to death. Now, what are the passions of the flesh? We can talk a lot about what these, uh, about putting them to death, but it's not helpful for us unless we recognize what they are. So uh, I found a passage um, in Galatians chapter 5. I think Paul does an excellent job of describing what the passions of the flesh are and comparing them to the fruit of the Spirit. This isn't a comprehensive list, but it's a great place to start. And it's kind of a, a long passage, uh, Galatians five thirteen through 25. But I don't want to just read all of this to you guys. So f- please follow along with me. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who are who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Notice what Paul is saying there. We crucify these things. We put them to death. Because I don't know if you notice it there. He says, anyone who does these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We put them to death so they don't put us to death instead. Now, this isn't a comprehensive list, as I said earlier, but it's a good place to start. Let's look at a couple of these different areas of of what it means when we talk about passions of the flesh. Passions of the flesh, first of all, includes sexual sin. Sex is a good thing from God that he has given us, but it can also be a place of stumbling for us. And all forms of sexual sin are like a knife that we thrust into our souls. 
includes adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lust. The list goes on and on. Jesus had extremely high standards when it came to sex and the sexual ethic in his day. And you may wonder why. It's because the first century was a very sexually charged place. Sex was used in worship. It was used in uh, parties. Uh, people had multiple, uh, multiple partners. It sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? The first century was extremely similar to our society today. And Jesus tells us to put these things to death. The issue isn't in our society. It's, in, it's within us. And so we must put them to death. Uh, passions of the flesh also include worldliness. See, we are a very materialistic society. Everyone, it seems, longs after more things. We have a society that wants more and more. And in Mark, the book of Mark, Jesus tells us uh, a story about this man who is out sowing seeds. He's casting these seeds left and right, just throws them indiscriminately. And some of the seed lies and lands among uh, some weeds. And as it begins to grow up, begins to be choked out by the weeds. And, and what Jesus tells us later is that this is like a passion for God, that when it is choked out by the weeds of this world, a desire for the things of this world, then it will choke out our love for God. The things of this world will choke out our love for God. It doesn't matter what they are. It could just uh, think of uh, a bigger house, more money, loving your children more than you love God. These are the things that will choke out our love for God. Passions of the flesh also include selfishness. We're a very self-centered society. We think about ourselves more than we probably think of anyone else. Um, we, we always consider our own interests before we consider those of others uh, most of the time. In fact, if you look at most uh, cases of divorce, my guess is most divorces are caused by selfishness. 99 times out of 100, that would be my guess. Selfishness is a part of our society. It leads to laziness because we don't want to serve those who are around us because, frankly, we think that we're more important than them. It's a form of pride. We think that we are better than other people. We're more focused on our own entertainment and on our own comfort than on other people. And so we neglect serving others. Selfishness is a form of idolatry. We say that we are more important than God, more important than what God has to say, and we are in charge of our lives, and not only our lives, but the lives of those who are around us. Selfishness is a form of idolatry. And these three things, and there are more than that, these passions of the flesh, sexual sin, worldliness, selfishness, are what Peter calls us to put to death here. But how exactly do we put these things to death? There's this book called Fidelity. It's by a guy named Douglas Wilson, and, and he writes about sexual temptation. And as he's writing about this, uh, he gives five ways for us to, uh, to avoid this temptation, to, to free ourselves from it. Very helpful book, uh, but I think that what he says not only applies to uh, sexual temptation, but it also applies to other forms of temptation. So I just want to uh, modify and tweak these a little bit and share these five points with you uh, real briefly. First one he says is this, learn the gospel. 
Learn the gospel. The more we focus on God, the more we focus on God's grace, the less time we have to be distracted by the passions of the flesh. We go on the offensive. Rather than waiting for them to war against us, we go on the offensive, learning the gospel, telling us the truth of the gospel day in and day out, that God has come down in the person of Jesus to die for us so that we can have a relationship with him. We focus on these things. And it puts the passions of the flesh to death. Second thing is this. Learn what the Bible teaches us about holiness. What the Bible teaches us about holiness. See, I think that we here in the United States have a pretty mistaken view of holiness. How many of you guys have heard the phrase, let go and let God? Okay, a couple of us. Let go and let God. Now, if we're talking about let go and let God, and we're saying that you shouldn't worry because God's in charge, I have no problem with that. But if you say, let go and let God is how I'm going to grow spiritually, then that is massively unbiblical. We don't just sit back and twiddle our thumbs waiting for ourselves to grow in holiness. Scripture uses a different metaphor when it's talking about our growth in faith and our growth in holiness. It uses a metaphor of war as we're talking about here. We grow through active pursuit of holiness. Uh, a great book about this is, is this book called The Hole in Our Holiness. It's by a pastor uh, named Kevin DeYoung. It's a pretty short book. I encourage you to check it out. He, he addresses some of the issues that we have in the United States today when it comes to holiness. So we have to learn what the Bible teaches us about holiness. The third thing is this. Learn the value of discipline and suffering. Learn the value of discipline and suffering. I've noticed in my own life, when I am uh, uh, more disciplined in areas of of diet and exercise, that's when I do the best job of putting to death the passions of the flesh. It's because self-control in one area uh, goes into other areas of our lives. Self-control transfers from one area to another. In the same way, when we talk about suffering, uh, our entire uh, series for some part has been talking a little bit about suffering and how we suffer in this life. And what I would encourage us to do as we suffer, as we find ourselves in hard times, is to ask ourselves, what is God trying to teach me? What is God trying to prune out of my life? What passion of the flesh can I put to death during this difficult season? God uses suffering to refine his people, as we saw in in 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's learn the value of discipline and suffering. Fourth, let's learn from the bad examples of the Bible. Learn from the bad examples of the Bible. Now, when I read 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, I love the story of David. It's probably one of my favorite uh, stories, long stories in the Bible. And I love, especially 1 Samuel, as it tells us all about what, what, what David is doing right. His entire life, it's like he can't miss He just keeps going on. And everything that he does, God has his favor upon him because he's doing everything right. But as I'm reading it, I get a little nervous as I get to the end of 1 Samuel. Because I know pretty soon in 2 Samuel what's coming. I know 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11 is coming where, where David falls. And David falls mightily. After his adultery with Bathsheba, David's life falls apart. Now, that's not saying that God doesn't forgive David. That's not saying that God doesn't uh, uh, still consider him a man after his own heart. But that's more due to God's grace than anything else. In a large part, David's life falls apart when he gives in to the passions of his flesh. 
his children kill one another. He almost loses his kingdom. There's war in his house, all because he gave in to the passions of the flesh. Today, we serve the same God as David. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we refuse to put the passions of the flesh to death in our own lives, if struggles come. See, God loves his children, and one of the ways that he loves them is through disciplining them. Helping them to overcome their attachment to the world, attachment to the passions of the flesh. So let's learn from the bad examples of the Bible and know that these things can happen and can come to us and catch it beforehand. And the fifth thing is this, flee. Just run away. There is nothing admirable at all about getting as close to sin without falling as we can. Instead of being someone who gets as close to the edge of the cliff as possible without falling over, let's be like Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph in the book of Genesis worked for a man named Potiphar in Egypt. And one time Potiphar's wife uh, came on to him and wanted to uh, sleep with him. And Joseph ran so fast the other direction that he actually left his cloak behind him. We should be the same way when it comes to temptation, when it comes to the passions of the flesh, that we should run so fast that we leave things behind. See, the truth is some of us are playing Russian roulette when it comes to sin. We're getting as close to it as we possibly can, just hoping that things don't end badly. So let's flee death before it results in our own death. See, there are many passions of the flesh that we are called to put to death. There are many ways that we can put those passions uh, to death. Those are just a couple of them that hopefully will get you started in this journey. But we are called to put death to death. Let's keep reading in, in First Peter chapter 2, verse 12 here. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as, as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If the first key to growing in faith and to growing in holiness is to put death to death, the second one is this. Bring life to life. Bring life to life. Well, let's see what exactly that means. See, a lot of times people in our society think of Christianity as a list of rules that we cannot break. Things that we cannot do. We can't, uh, we can't sleep around. We can't get hammered. We can't swear. We can't basically have any sort of fun whatsoever, according to our society. But Christianity just isn't just negative, telling us things that are prohibited for us. It also tells us what we are called to do in our lives. It tells us how we are to live. See, if we put to death the passions of the flesh in our lives, odds are we're going to have a lot more free time in our lives. And what Peter tells us is that we are called to do something with that time, to do good with our lives. This is what he means when he says, keep your conduct honorable. See, in God's infinite wisdom, he will use our good deeds, our actions, to bring life to ourselves, but also they will bring life to those who are around us. And we'll see this as we continue looking at this passage. We're called to keep our conduct honorable. And one way we do that is through what I like to call common ground morality. 
Okay, so in our society, there is a bit of an overlap between what our society thinks of as good and what we as Christians think of as good. So, for example, everyone that you would talk to would consider helping out with Habitat for Humanity a good thing. Volunteering at the Dream Center is a good thing. Fighting against injustices like domestic violence and human trafficking are good things. There's no issue there. It doesn't matter if you talk to a Christian or a hardened atheist. Everyone is going to recognize that those are good things. That's the common ground morality that we have. But it's not just about volunteering and doing things with our free time that Peter has in mind here when he talks about keeping our conduct honorable. I love the way Matt Perman puts it. Matt Perman is an author of this book called What's Best Next, and he talks about good deeds and what we're called to do as Christians. I want to just read this to you. It's, it's a little long, but I think it's really important for us. He says this, here's what this means. The things that we are doing Each and every day when we are being productive, things like answering emails, going to meetings, making supper for the family are not just things we are doing. They are good works. When you are answering emails, you aren't just answering emails. You are doing good works. When you attend meetings, you aren't just attending meetings. You are doing good works. When you make supper for your family, you aren't just making supper for your family. You are doing good works. When you put the kids to bed, you aren't just putting the kids to bed. You are doing good works. The activities of our everyday lives are not separate from the good works that God has called us to. They are themselves part of the good works that God created us for in Christ. And therefore, they have great meaning. Good works are done by being a good employee, by being a good boss, by loving your kids and your spouse, by loving those who are around you. As Christians, when we keep our conduct honorable, as we do good works with our lives, that encompasses everything that we do. You have an opportunity to do good works in every single aspect of your life. Whether it's something that seems as mundane as answering an email, or if it's something as great as serving other people with your time. God has called us to good works, and these good works are part of everything that we do. But Peter doesn't just tell us to do the things that are common ground morality with our culture. He also tells us that we are supposed to do things that go against what our culture wants us to do. There are things as Christians that we are called to do and called to believe that people in our society don't agree with, might seem offensive and intolerant in our world's eyes. In fact, as we look through the next couple chapters of 1 Peter, we're going to see a couple specific examples of these things that we are called to live out that may seem offensive to our culture. But as Christians, we are called to submit not only to the things in Scripture that our society wants us to, but in every aspect of our lives. And this may lead to us not being the most popular person in town. It's the reality of it. We might expect slander in our lives. It can be hard for us because I like being liked. It's just a part of who I am. And there's nothing wrong with liking to be liked. 
But we have to consider the times when we have to choose between what the Bible says and what our society says. And we cannot compromise. Even if it is radically unpopular, we have to bring life to life. And that means not compromising in these situations. I, read, or I mentioned the book, The Hole in Our Holiness, a couple moments ago and recommended that book to you. I want to just read a, a quote from that book uh, by Kevin DeYoung. And it, it talks a little bit about this. He says this, Many Christians had the mistaken notion that if only we were better Christians, everyone would appreciate us. They don't realize that holiness comes with a cost. Sure, you can focus on the virtues the world likes, but if you pursue religion that cares for orphans and promotes purity, you'll lose some of your friends that were so, you were so desperate to make. Because a, by becoming a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, you, require, you are required to resist the world which wants to press you into its mold. Saving yourself from marriage, staying sober on a Friday night, turning down a promotion to stay at your church, refusing to say the F word, turning off the television. These are the kinds of things that the world doesn't understand. And don't expect them to. The world provides no cheerleaders on the pathway to godliness. I love that last phrase. The world provides no cheerleaders on the pathway to godliness. There are times in our lives when we can expect slander by keeping our conduct honorable, by doing good works. It won't happen all the time because there is common ground between what we believe and what our society believes. But if you never stand up to culture and what it says is good, then either you don't believe the Bible or you are a coward. As Christians, we are called to something more, to live lives of holiness that bring life to life. Let's keep looking here at the end of verse 12. At the end of verse 12, Peter tells us why. He says why we do all these things, why we keep our conduct honorable. And what we see is that when we do these things, when we do good works, people will glorify God when he returns. There are really two ways that that can happen. People will glorify God when he returns. First, by coming to faith. And God's wisdom, he uses our good deeds, he uses our actions to bring people to faith. Now this doesn't mean that that's evangelism when you are answering emails, but it does start conversations where you can share the gospel with people. And in God's goodness, he has used these things to bring people to faith. To bring life to life. God uses our actions to give life to those who do not have it. The second time, God uses our good deeds to bring judgment upon people. See, the reality is people will not always respond to our good deeds by coming to faith. A lot of times they will respond to our good deeds through slander and ridicule. And Peter tells us not to be surprised by that. we look at Philippians chapter 2, we see that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what he's saying, what Paul is saying in that passage is that everyone, no matter whether they're a Christian or not, is one day going to recognize who Jesus is and they are going to confess that he is Lord. And a lot of people are going to do that reluctantly. And they're going to glorify God through judgment. It's not something we like to talk about. This is one of those things, frankly, that our society doesn't agree with, but it's what we find in Scripture. 
and God is good enough that he uses all things for his glory. And he has allowed us the opportunity to bring life to life in the lives of those who are around us by doing good works, by doing good things in our lives. That is an incredible privilege that we have as Christians. So how do we grow in faith? How do we grow in holiness? Well, we do it by doing two things. First, we put death to death. The second thing is we bring life to life. It's easier said than done. I know that. It can be hard to live these things out in our lives. But Peter gives us the right motivation. He tells us who we are, our identity as Christians, and says we can go forth from here. And he tells us that we get the privilege of being a part of the lives of other people and maybe seeing them come to faith through our good deeds. If we look at uh, Muslims who have converted to Christianity, there was a survey done where a number of Muslims who had converted to Christianity were asked why they became Christians. And the overwhelming majority of them said it was because they were loved by Christians. They experienced love from those who called themselves Christ followers. We have the privilege to serve others through our good deeds and through loving them. We see a connection here between our actions and our faith. One cannot exist without the other. If you want to grow in holiness, if you want to change to become a better person, then work on your faith and and seek after God in your faith. In the same way, if, if you want to grow in your faith, then make changes and grow in holiness. Put to death the passions of the flesh and bring life to life in your life. To use the analogy that we started with, you cannot neglect the elephant or the rider. We have to address both areas. We have to address what we believe in our faith. We also have to address what we do and how we live those things out. If we don't, we live ineffective lives as Christians. We miss out on on goodness in our relationship with God. Let's put death to death and bring life to life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would have the strength, the courage, and really your Spirit's enabling power to put to death the things in our life that are hindering our relationship with you, that are dragging us down. I pray that we would not do these things out of a sense of duty, or a sense of willpower, but rather we would do it through the motivation of knowing that we are your children, and if we don't kill them, they're going to kill us. And Father, at the same time, we pray that we would bring life to life, that you would give us opportunities to do good works, and through those good works, that you would be pleased to bring people to faith, that they would glorify you on the day of your visitation. God, as we go forth from here, we ask that you would go before us, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.